everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bias Check-In. Hi, everyone. I hope you are ready for our first guest of 2023. First of this year, uh, but not her first appearance on the BCI Frequencies. Bruna Corradetti is one-third of the Bring Us Home Italian researchers we interviewed back in November 2021 on the Europe-US travel ban. And she serves as assistant professor in the Center for Precision Environmental Health at Baylor College in Texas, Houston, where she also heads the Corradetti Lab and focuses on stem cell research. Bruna, thank you so much for coming back on our microphones. Uh, it's great to have you back. But anything you want to add to your intro? What have you been up to since our last chat? Thank you very much for hosting me again. Um, well, many things have been going on since then. Uh, we are uh, in my lab, in the Corradetti lab, we are developing biomimetic strategies for regenerative medicine. What does that mean? It means that we are trying to take inspiration from nature and we look at the tissues in our body and how cells interact between each other. What are the messages that they exchange? And our research is mainly focused on stem cells because stem cells are therapeutic cells that we use for developing um, strategies that are able to talk to the cells in, uh, in the context of a disease or uh, inflammation and modulate their phenotype. So meaning that they can change their behavior from inflammatory, so to support inflammation or damage, to uh, induce regeneration. And with this concept, so now we are looking at those messages that they exchange that are uh, released in the form of uh, nanovesicles. So um, we use, the, these particles are called exosomes. They are nanoscopic. They can uh, migrate and penetrate tissues and uh, depending on the environment the stem cells are, they contain different messages that are uh, able to reach specific cell types and then uh, induce regeneration or not. So we are looking into this information, so how the composition of this particle changes uh, over time or depending on the environment, and uh, in the attempt to develop therapeutics that are synthetically produced, but they resemble what our body already produces. And uh, on, a separate, on a separate project, we are developing biomimetic uh, patches uh, that are supposed to be band-aid for the treatment of chronic wounds uh, for um, diabetic um, patients. And uh, this second project is supported by the De Department of Defense. And is, uh, you know, the target will be the treatment of chronic wounds in veterans with uh, the subsequent or following application to civilians. So saying that we are not inventing anything, we're really trying to reproduce what our body already has. So look into the secrets of the body to develop strategies that would be accepted by the body because this is an important aspect. We need to make sure that anything that is produced is uh, recognized by the body as a friend so that uh, the biomolecular effect of uh, this whatever strategy will be will be effective and efficient. Because if you think about it, so we've been developing materials uh, and stem cell therapeutics for musculoskeletal diseases. And um, with my PhD uh, project, I've been uh, saving uh, the life of uh, many horses. 
um, that were suffering from uh, spontaneous tendon lesions. And these horses were mainly atle- athletic horses, so they went back to the athletic performance after the treatment. Unfortunately, Houston decided to join the chat, but we could talk about horses and stem cell research all day. Thank you for sharing with us all the work that you've been doing at your lab and your research. Amazing, amazing work. Another amazing thing you did was give a TED Talk. Can you share with us what or how you got to that TED Talk stage and why you decided to share what you did? Okay, so that was uh, an amazing news I received once. I got this uh, vocal message on Instagram from a person I crossed uh, during my life as a student. So it was totally unexpected. Um, this person, well, I, I did, I gave my TED talk in Ascoli Piceno, which is uh, the area of the world I'm coming from. And so this person comes from the same place and I didn't know he was part of the organization. And I didn't know that while they were identifying potential speakers for TED, many people around the table were mentioning my name. I keep saying that the reason why I've been invited, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I think it was mainly based on the fact that uh, I received different uh, awards in Italy. So I was among the 100 Italian excellences that were nominated in 2017. And I had received a an award as a role model in STEM. So I think that there was, you know, like a series of lots of people from the press was talking about me and uh, they were talking about the research I was doing, but mainly about my role in the academic environment and my role with young people. So what they asked me to do was, of course, to discuss about my science. And I've been, and I was so honored to do that. And I remember I started crying and I was in a car with my mom And she said, what's wrong? What happened? I was like, I don't know. Like, this is what I always wanted to do. I wanted to have a chance to talk on a stage, at that stage. And she didn't know what that was. So I started showing her all these videos. And uh, when I was a a professor in Italy, I used to uh, use these videos for um, letting the students understand science through the words of the people that are doing science. So that's how I show them, like, the discovery of the DNA and things like that, the PCR invention and um, many other things. So um, I've been thinking a lot about what I was supposed to talk about and how to tailor my talk and make, make it great. And then I wanted to just face the reality. I haven't invented yet, not, nothing yet. And so I was like, what is really that I would like? What is the message that I want to deliver? So how can I use this platform at best. And I started thinking that maybe really what what is uh, currently my biggest passion is uh, to talk about science and talk about resilience in science. And I had this uh, experience a few years earlier where resilience was uh, something, the only word that could describe those years that I had spent in Italy. And actually, if I look back at my career, my scientific careers, career that is not just my career, it's the career of scientists. I've been traveling a lot around the world. I've been living in different places. I had to say goodbye too many times. I had to start to start many, many lives. I feel that I've been living so many lives so far. And I wanted to give back and I wanted to say that 
it is a struggle sometimes being in science. It is, uh, I'm very passionate about it. I'm very enthusiastic about it. But we don't talk enough about the struggle that we have to face. And so I thought if there is something that I really master, he is a failure and then the success that comes after the failure and then the next failure. And then which is what science is all about. And so my, my talk was supposed to be around my research on stem cells and the more I was looking into that, the more I understood that stem cells were the best fit for me to use to represent the, 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 the students because stem cells are um, cells that we use because they have a therapeutic potential. But the reality is that stem cells can be whatever we want. So we can drive their phenotype, the, their behavior, depending on how we can change the environment. And isn't that the same with, with, with young people? We, we can really support them and make them succeed, or we can, we can mortify them or humiliate them and make them fail forever. So I had many stories to tell, but I didn't want to tell the stories about my students. I wanted to tell the stories about myself and how I've been using my vulnerable part to share my science and the human part of science, to create a safe environment, a safe space where we can share our struggle. Just to, now people use a lot the term normalize, right? We, we want to normalize failure, struggling, yeah, in the way that helps people not to feel that they are a failure, but to feel that failure is just part of the process. I'm grinning and laughing because I could see both Susie and I were geeking out as you were talking, it's like, yep, yep, we can relate. Yep, we know that one. Hearing you share this is so great because at least for us, um, it's a perfect example of how some industrial organizational concepts are really universal experiences. Like, show me someone that's never failed once. They just came out of the womb. They knew how to write, read, walk, run. Um and it's a little bit of a self-interested plug for our field, but everyone can benefit from knowing a little bit of it. And every office, every workplace, every research lab can benefit from having an IO presence and an IO awareness. But shameless promotion aside, you know, across job families, across different national cultures, you're talking about the belief in meritocracy employee expectations, navigating office interpersonal politics, organizational cultures, and all of the norms that you need to be socialized in when you first come in. And our favorite, that X factor of sharing authentically with others, modeling to the organizational citizenship behaviors, a little bit like a mom could say, when, not when we're showing her a TED Talk, but like in general, like, you know, behave and treat others how you want to be treated. I think like we were all brought up with that a lot. Um, you shared in your TED talk that you got your first microscope as a child and you were on a science one track mind ever since. And I know as a society, we often have this stereotype of scientists being very pragmatic, maybe a little bit cold, logicians, introverts, maybe not doing great with other people, social interactions. So 
I wanted to ask you, like, clearly, like, you don't seem to fit into a lot of the stereotypes I've just named. What do you think helped you bring that warmth and integrate the human relations aspects into your work habits as well? This is a very interesting question. Yes, I asked for a microscope. And if I had to go back to that moment, probably I was already a scientist. Or maybe I became a scientist because looking through the the lens of the microscope, I discovered a world that was not at hand. And so I became curious and curiosity is one of those things that scientists really need. Um, How really, like if I have to look back, like I was a super shy person. And uh, when I remember until a couple of, well, five years ago, my grandma used to say, I don't recognize you. This is not who you were. And this is very interesting. I think that I've been uh, able to open up more when I started uh, my university experience. And um, I remember I was living with people that were studying medicine and they were um, much older than me. And I had this experience for Erasmus exchange programs. And that's when I started, you know, seeing that, yeah, I could go from very small things that I could access through microscope to very big things and have a perspective of the world that is completely different. And then through the interaction with different cultures, different, with, through different languages, I discovered that I was really curious not only about detailed uh, mechanism, but also about how people interact. And this social part is uh, uh, plays a, a huge role in my life. So I'm really interested in uh, why people behave they do, the way they do, uh, why someone responds in a way. I, I, I'm also always saying, like, if I wasn't a scientist, I would have been a psychologist, or you know, because I'm so much into those things. Uh, to understand how culture drives choices and and that, I don't know, it was natural. I don't know what happens. It was, it just came natural. And I think that, yes, you're very much right. Like this is uh, now very needed, very much needed because I think that you can be the best scientist, but if you cannot really explain what you're doing um, to everybody, your science is not accessible to anybody. And so you have to be able to share. And this capability of sharing sometimes, um, you know, if you don't have it, it, rep- it also represents an issue when you interact with your colleagues. Because th- there are, you know, two phases uh, of, of science. There, is a, there are people that are very open to share their science. They are not afraid of doing it. Other people are sometimes um, afraid of sharing information because they don't want to be scooped. So yes, we are very open. We need to be very open. I I indeed think that we need to be very open. I see that, you know, my experiences around the world have been, are now very beneficial for the way I deal with the people that work with me because all the, um, the lab, the Corradetti lab members, they are international. So they are American. Uh, they are no longer Italians, but I had many Italians, but Mexican, um, Indian, you know. So many people come from all around the world. And uh, sometimes you have to deal with different ways of approaching interaction, social interactions, about different ways to, of approaching, you know, judgment because of course when we discuss about data this is another thing like science is open 
has to be open. As you, you have to be brave to show your idea, share your ideas. Because what happens is that if you have an idea, let's say when we discuss projects, I may have an idea, but if I'm not open enough, my idea will be just limited to my limited brain. And I have to open it up to people that can see it from different perspectives. And that's the only way we have to make sure that that idea could work. So you have to be open for that idea to be completely destroyed and rebuilt. And uh, it takes courage. That's another side of vulnerability that is associated to science that I can see. Most of the times we talk about, we tell stories of success, right? And we say, oh, this guy, this girl, uh, these scientists are so uh, successful. And this is the list of projects that they've been developing, blah, blah, blah. And we make it look that they've been doing everything alone, which is not true and is never true. So that, I think we really need to be, as I, I keep saying this, but really we need to make science human and we need to make sure that we deliver the right concept about, about science. Science is human and it's shared, needs to be shared. Then, of course, there is a lot of competition, but that's a different level. And that's why most of the people prefer not to share anything. Well, then talking about being vulnerable and not sharing but making a safe space for people to know that failure happens and it's okay um, we haven't talked too much about it on here but I've been job searching for a while now and the pressure plus my timeline plus anxiety all these fun things sometimes it does feel like I have failed Although I know I'm putting in all the work necessary for my upcoming success. But really, early career is scary for everyone. Looking into some of the common challenges of being early career, we found an entire body of research that looks into these challenges specifically for postdoctoral scientists and researchers. Um, so... It is encouraging that people are paying attention, but it's also a symptom that maybe current systems are not working as efficiently or as perfectly as we thought. And this is talking about people in research. I've encountered a lot of interviews and job descriptions where I read it and I know as an IO I can do the things that they're asking for, but they don't know that an IO can do those things. And so I have to prove myself once again. This reminds me of we were hiring a research assistant and we had many candidates as always. Uh, they were all good. And there was this guy and I said, how do you keep yourself organized? And so he said, well, I have this, uh, I can tell you that when my dad left the, the family, I had to be reorganizing everything he had left behind. And so this and that and that. And I found it so valuable that no master could have, you know, covered that because he, I felt he was so real in the way he was sharing this part. And this aspect of his life was profoundly making an impact on his way he was, he was organizing his life, not only his life, but also the life of his family. That that's, if I had to say, that was the reason why I decided to hire him and push him too much, more than others. Um... And I was not wrong. 
he was one of the best. Now he's a pediatrician and, uh, you know, he's having his uh, amazing career. But really, that, that's something that had an impact in my choice, my decision to give him a chance more than anything else, more than the, the studies that he had done, the scores and all of this. Talking about scores, this is uh, one of the questions that people ask me all the time or students are very scared of, you know, because you are evaluated at the end of the day, but at least in Italy, 20 minutes of an oral exam and, uh, and then you are much more than that. And uh, I don't really think the scores make the difference in uh, the work setting, the work environment. So I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for commitment. And uh, for people that have a big picture, over, even if you don't know exactly how to get where you want to get, but uh, you know, you know, you have an idea of what you want to do. In our chat and your TED talk, you share a very, very nice story about the big picture and sometimes photos. So can I ask you to share your story about when you were going a little bit into the post-graduation blues and the picture that brought you back to the lab? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so as I was mentioning, I've been uh, studying and working in different places around the world, in Europe mainly, and then I had the opportunity to come to the United States. When I came to the United States, I, was, uh, I had a contract as a researcher in Italy, and uh, I took a sabbatical. So that was very special in the sense that the same day I was uh, officially hired, I also officially submitted the request to go for a sabbatical. <laughs> And that's pretty much me in the sense that I shoot for many opportunities and when they come, I need to manage them. I need to understand how to deal with them. So I've been given that opportunity because I had a fellowship. So I was covering my expenses and it was fine. When I came back to Italy and uh, I felt, you know, after the um, being in the highly productive environment in terms of science that I was at in Houston, I went back to my lab, I had to set my lab, like my very small lab with a lot of students because I, I was also given the opportunity to lecture. And at the time that lecturing was feeling like a burn because I was thinking that it was just taking me away from my passion for research, from my time for research. And I was, you know, like preparing lectures, doing everything. So I was not just covering or replacing someone, I was creating my own. And it was taking a lot of time. And uh, I didn't know really that uh, those, those years were the most impactful years in my life. Because this possibility to interact with students were really giving me more than I would have ever, ever expected. So while I was dedicating my time to lecturing, I realized that I didn't have the resources to perform a good research. And uh, I was applying for grants in Italy as well, you know, for the European Commission and trying to get funded. Most of the times the feedback that I was receiving was that my ideas were good, that I was a good scientist, but that was not a good environment for me because there was not much about nanomedicine, regenerative medicine, which is what I do. And um, so... I don't know, there, there was, you know, there was a moment where I really felt I had no options, no chance to do good science, that, that was what I wanted to do. I was trying to push to have 
um, to be promoted. And what I was given as an answer was that I didn't have the, you don't have the, un, the numbers, they say, no, I was not enough. That was probably just, you know, um, triggering my imposter syndrome. Like I was already trying to be the best I could and other, everybody around me was just telling me, oh, you're not enough. But number, my numbers really, like my productivity, scientific productivity was very high and I had lots of collaborations. In fact, what the research I was really developing at the moment was because of my international collaborations. And I got to a point where I, I started thinking that really I was not enough. And this was also the same moment where I received the award as, you know, was nominated among one of, um, among the 100 Italian excellencies. Still, I was unemployed when I did. Can you believe that? So I got to a, to a, to a moment where I decided that because I was not enough, science was not for me. And I was invited by um, some colleagues in Edinburgh, working at the University of Edinburgh, to give a talk. And uh, when I went to give a talk, I met on the, on the front row, there was my supervisor from my time during my PhD in, in Edinburgh. Uh, I had done six months, well, eight months, uh, working on um, embryonic stem cells and nanotechnology. That, that was the fir first experience I had with nanotechnology. And I think everything started from there. And um, this guy was uh, listening to my talk. And when I finished the talk, he came and said, you know, like I, didn't, I, I knew you were a star, but I didn't know you had done so much. And I was happy. I was, you know, almost um, getting emotional about that because I knew that I was quitting science. I had taken this decision already. So when he invites me to discuss more about science and I, I follow him to his office and we are talking and I feel, you know, this passion for science is uh, starting again, is you know, coming up again from deep inside, whether I, I edit it. And... I say, okay, I mean, everything is cool, but don't count me in because I'm done with science and this is the moment where I'm telling you that I'm done, I, I quit. And his reaction was making me feel, really was reinforcing the fact that I was not enough because he didn't say anything, he just said, okay. So I thought, you know, he used to, to call me like star. Really, he was the only person that I found uh, they had found uh, until then that was supporting me very much, right? And I was like, he used to call me your star, and now he's saying that it's okay if I quit. Maybe he was just doing that in, a, in an attempt to make me become a better version of myself, and that's that's something that hasn't happened. And you know, maybe I'm right. I should quit. So I go back to Italy and uh, I look for other jobs. Uh, I look for other opportunities. Uh, I even try to become an editor for um, a big journal. And uh, we are in the, finally, uh, the final evaluation um, discussion. Uh, the editor-in-chief calls me in a separate line and he says, are you sure that you want to become an editor and you want to quit science? Because that's not what I would do if I were you. And he says, like, I would like to understand why you want to do this. And if you really are, are you know, ready to 
read other people's science or support a journal instead of doing your science. I think you still have a lot of ideas that you, you can and want to develop. And I just pretended that, yes, I wanted to, to quit. And then I, a couple of months later, I received this email from my mentor from Edinburgh. And in the subject of the email, he says, this is what you look like when you do what you are passionate about. I opened the, the email and there is this picture of me that he had retrieved on, uh, from, from the um, uh, website of um, the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Um, I don't know, like it was me with these eyes, you know, like bright eyes while I'm talking about science with a person that I had met there. And this picture has, had been used to to talk about, you know, like young investigators. So it was just in the in the page that was about be passionate about science, right? And it was me. And so the reason why I used that picture in my TED talk is because no one has pushed me to go back to science. He didn't push me to go back to science. What pushed me to go back to science was the light that my eyes had when I was talking about science. And I think that that was the light that I needed to gain back. So I decided that I was not quitting science. I was quitting with the environment I was doing science, science at. And I, was, I, I owed it to myself to find a better place that could align with my values, that could support my ambition, that could you know, just not talk about the fact that I was too young, that I had to wait, that I didn't have the numbers, that, because there was all of those things. I don't know if I can say this, but it's like BS. So, so that, that's why I think that picture tells more about my passion in science than anything I can say. And, uh, and so every time I do that, like every time I look at that picture, I remind myself that the reason why I do what I do, especially when the, there are days that you feel a failure. There are many times where we really like, you, we just have to consider that science is about failure because we have an idea, we have an hypothesis, we test the hypothesis. Most of the times we don't get what we hypothesized. But that no as an answer is just another step for us to move forward, right? So that's what it is about. We've asked Bruna, so we'll add the picture to our social medias when this episode comes out. Um, I just love this story because I know what my version of that picture is. So I wanted to poke you on it and to also encourage everyone to find their version of their picture. Because, yeah, we all need those reminders. Um, and when we were talking to this episode, again, I cannot stress enough how important it is to me to have this conversation and how universal like these experiences are. Um, because as you share it, I always think of my mentor that after I graduated undergrad, I came back to Italy and no one cared or knew what a psychology degree from the U.S. meant. And what kind of jobs I was qualified for or not qualified for based on that piece of paper. It was very fancy and very useless at the same time. Um, and I remember this one about October after graduating and applying everywhere. I received this offer back, which was to be a special ed support staff member 
for pre-K children with either learning or intellectual disabilities. And anyone who knows me knows that, well, I love children. I am all for accessibility. I am so far from being qualified to work with either. But I, that's what I had av available to me. So I was like, well, I guess I should take it. Beggars can't be choosers. And that night I emailed my old mentor. Well, not old in the sense of they're an old person, but my mentor from undergrad. I was like, hey, do you think I could do this grad school thing? Because this is what I have available to me. And it's not what I want, but it's what's available. And like you were saying, like I was looking at my numbers. I was looking at my GPA. I was looking at the classes I took, where I took them. And I knew I wasn't about to be recruited by any fancy program. And so I was like, well, do I need to be real? Do I need to move completely away from this? And he immediately emailed back, thank God for time differences. And was just like, yeah, you can do grad school. I mean, you know your GPA. You're not about to be recruited to an Ivy League. But yes, you can. You're going to have to work. And it's very similar to what you were saying. Like He didn't push me to apply. But he gave me just that little push to be like, yeah, that door is open. It's up to you to go through it. And it's, I love the fact that like there are those people that do that for others. But, and I love that there's people that share their stories. So thank you again. <laughs> Absolutely. There is also another thing to consider that each of us need a different lesson, right? So maybe if um, he would have said, no, you are so good, you should do that. Like I was already convinced that I was going to quit. So he, he used, you know, of course he found that picture, but probably that was the best message I could receive to rewire my mind and see things from a different perspective. And that's another thing. In, in science, we need also, we need to share struggle, science, but also in general, I'm talking about young people. We need to share because people can give you a feedback that comes from a different perspective. And so you can get out of your mind sometimes, which is what is really needed and just see things differently and feel immediately different. Oh, yes. Yesterday I was definitely sharing my struggles um, and People were being very supportive and telling me that things will come and things will happen when they need to happen. And I'm doing everything in my power to make them happen. Um, but listening to you speak, I understand how it can be hard to find the balance between being proactive and resilient at the individual level but also being in the right environment to thrive. There's always a component of luck of being in the right space at the right time, but also of that personal development and being aware of and willing to being intentional in developing the meaningful connections and identifying what environment one needs to thrive. And a lot of what you've shared so far comes to that person organization fit, as well as the concept of having that growth or fixed mindset when facing some of these challenges and hurdles you've been talking about. Such a great episode, and it's definitely helped me a lot today. Uh, we hope this was a fun listen to all of you. 
as it has been for us to record with you, Bruna. Um, but for those who might be newer to our podcast, we like to close our guest episodes with soapboxes. We are handing over the mic to our guest now to share her message, whether it's related to the episode topic or not. So, Bruna, take it away. Okay, so my message is uh, that comes from my ex personal experience, but also from the experience I gained from the people I'm surrounding myself by, is uh, dream big and never give up. I think this was the same message that I shared with you when uh, we discussed about bring us home. Uh, don't let the system uh, drown you down. Just do not, you know, like do find the best place for you to shine. That's the only thing that matters. And it is difficult. And you've been talking about uh, lucky and uh, to being in the right place in the right moment, which is uh, sometimes true. But to be in the right place at the right moment, it takes the courage to change places over time. Or, you know, not being just stuck in a, in a, in a place because things don't happen to, to people that are not willing to look around and experience and jump sometimes. Thank you so much. Um, now for our closing, I want to echo what Susie said. Thank you so much for coming along. This was really fun to record and to talk through. Um, to our listeners, you can follow Bruna's work on social media at, at Corradetti Lab and at Bring Us Home on Instagram. Uh, Bruna, anywhere else they can reach out to you or your team? Well, they can reach out to me, uh, to my institutional email address, which is bruna.corradetti at bcm.edu. And uh, on Instagram, my personal account is su con la vita. And you will find all of those tagged along with our profile. So let us know about your early career challenges, what helped. Give a shout out to your mentors and share your story in our DMs at Bias Check-In Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and in our Facebook community. Leave us a voice note on anchor.fm or shoot us an email at biascheckin at gmail.com if you would like to be our next guest. And with that, everyone, we shall check in next week. That's a